Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another trippy episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. I'm your hostess, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. With me, of course, is the fantastic, the wonderful, out of this world co-host, Michael Verratti. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello, Peaches. I am so stoked to do this week's movie because... You know, a lot of the movies we do already have an ardent fan base. And not that this one doesn't, but I think that this is one of those rare cases where we're about to introduce a movie to a whole new generation just because this one kind of got lost. Yeah, as we discuss going through the show, this idea actually popped up because of one of our younger interview subjects, uh, one of our guests, which is really kind of unusual and and a testament to his cultness that he suggested this particular film and is a fan of this film because it really is a movie that even amongst my cult movie fans, the only people I know that know this movie are much older. And um, I think the only reason it was on my radar is because of its connection to San Francisco. But before we get any further, even if you've heard the title, because you read it in the notes of the podcast, uh, I think Michael needs to give it one of his Michael Verratti introductions. Michael, what movie are we doing? If you're tired of the humdrum existence and need to go on a little trip through love and your own mind. And maybe you've always wanted to see one of Broadway's grand doms seduce one of teen beach movies greatest idols, then this is the movie for you. That's right. I'm talking about 1968's Scud Do, directed by the one and only Otto Preminger and starring none other than Jackie Gleason, Carol Channing, Frankie Avalon, Peter Lawford, Frank Gorshin, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith. Oh my God, I could keep going. Groucho Marx plays God. So there we go. That's <laughs> and, and, and Mickey Rooney. It's like, it doesn't yeah. stop. It doesn't stop. And then that other guy that I'm obsessed with. Um, so it's definitely one of those movies where it has all the elements to kind of be either a box office hit or if nothing else, a cult movie. Uh, and somehow it's sort of been lost in the shuffle. Although it is a cult movie and there is a cult audience for it. And we know that. And that's one of the reasons we're doing it. In fact, I think when you asked me about it, Michael, uh, you were you're like, have you heard of this movie, Skidoo? And I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I have. And, and at the time I didn't realize maybe it was as, as, as rare or unusual as we found it is. Yeah, and full transparency. So I was one of the people who had never heard of this. And I consider myself pretty, you know, up to snuff when it comes to bizarre and strange and cult movies. Hello, you're like the ultimate nerd. I mean, <laughs> it's unusual that you, that I would know of a movie, cult movie that you wouldn't. Let's just say that. I mean, true. You, you, you won some, I don't know, some trivia contest recently and someone went out of their way to be like, are you friends with that Michael Verratti? The <laughs> Michael Verratti who won the cult movie or horror movie trivia contest? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's probably the same person. Yeah, it was an episode of the movie Trivia Schmodown, which actually has quite an audience. They invited <laughs> me on for holiday horror movies. And I think I was supposed to be the novelty guest. Like he's written holiday movies. He's written horror movies. So it will be just fun to have one of them. And uh, I won. And it yeah. was really great because this this show has like a dedicated fan base. And like there are multiple seasons and people get very rabid about it. And my favorite comment, because it exists very outside of our world. So the people were like, oh, I can't, you know, season 22 ends and the big winner is 
that guy. That was what like someone said in the comments. And I was just like, you know what? That's right. I am that guy. But, um, you know, in, in, in the full transparency, I had never heard of this movie. And my boyfriend, Brendan, was watching this movie one night when I came home. I think that was actually with you. It might have been the night we got back from Iowa and making ah. the short film that we worked on together. And I walked in and I see this vision of Carol Channing in full pirate drag with a bunch of hippies singing a bizarre musical number. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And he says, it's skidoo, as if I'm supposed to know what that means. <laughs> and so later I messaged Peaches and say, have you heard of this movie? And you, you had, but it was also kind of like one of those, like, oh, what a weird movie to look up. And then when I was doing my research, I found out that it had had a midnight movie life partially because it had played at the Roxy Theater at midnights for a mm -hmm. while in San Francisco. And for those of you who keep, have been keeping up with the show, the Roxy is where Peaches and I did our Phantom of the Paradise live, as well as we'll probably be doing other future shows in the Bay Area. So there was just sort of this confluence of events that led us to Skidoo. I, you know, hadn't heard the title in many, many, many years, but I remember it because in the early days of Midnight Mass, when I was programming the different uh, seasons of Midnight Mass, and we would, I would program them by season. So, you know, I would do, I put out a whole calendar of midnight shows and I still can't believe, but we would do a different show every week, week after week. And I remember from the very first year that, that I was getting suggestions, especially from local film programmers, as well as cult movie fans um, locally, older folks for sure, older at the time was probably younger than I am now, much younger. Uh, that's how long ago this was. Kept saying, Skidoo, you should do Skidoo. And I was like, I don't know what Skidoo is. So I had to go out and find it. And at the time, much like Brendan's discovery of it, uh, I think I got a bootleg copy. There was a, a, an incredible video store here in San Francisco in the Sunset District called La Video. La Video had everything. And when I say it had everything, like, I mean, it was a movie nerds fantasy come to life. Like, so they had things that weren't distributed. They had bootlegs, the pirated copies. I mean, they had it all. And so I went and I got Skidoo and I watched it and I was kind of like, how is it that people don't know about this? Now, they yeah. do, they did know about it uh, in San Francisco because the screenings at the Roxy, which also led to screenings at the Red Vic Movie House. I went and kind of did my research to back up my memories. And sure enough, the Castro Theater. So it was regionally a cult movie here, much like Phantom of the Paradise was, you know, in Winnipeg. And we also need to point out that that's partially due to the fact that a good chunk of the movie is set and shot in San Francisco. Exactly. A big portion of the film's finale takes place at Alcatraz, was shot at Alcatraz, and has this whole like San Francisco city skyline thing where a balloon flies over it. And of course, this all was able to be achieved because Otto Preminger being the creme de la creme of Hollywood. Hollywood, Otto Preminger wants Alcatraz. They're like, oh, the director of Anatomy of a Murder wants to shoot a movie here. Yeah. Of course, they gave it to him. And I don't know that they realized that what they were actually handing over was the keys of Alcatraz to make like a bizarre LSD trip. Which is the other part of it, right? Like, so not only right. does it take place in San Francisco, but then the other component is it's a drug movie. It's an LSD hallucinogenic psychedelic trip. So 
I think those two things, it was shot here and then, you know, it's 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 about tripping, meant that it was obviously going to be popular with San Franciscans. Right. And I think that that also leads to a important moment for us here at Midnight Mass, because as you know, we celebrate many different kinds of cult film. And this is a specific avenue of cult film that we haven't really done before, but does exist. And that is the head trip movie, the drug movie, the psychedelic movie. And there were a number of them made during this era, many of which still persist. And we we talk about this with both of our guests to varying degrees, but they're sort of cult films that exist a little bit outside of our usual cult film milieu that you and I do. But there are movies like The Head, that was the movie that Monkeys did, or just called Head, Hair, the trip, Easy Rider could probably yeah. be lumped into that also as part of like the juvenile delinquent sort of thing. And Skidoo is sort of a great entry point for us at Midnight Mass to explore the psychedelic cult film because it still has a lot of the elements that speak to us. There is sort of a queerness to it. There is a drag to it. But there's also just a bizarreness that goes beyond just the psychedelic into this wider space of oh, this is a movie that's not easily contained in any way, and it didn't land well for that reason, but is also deeply fascinating. And really good, right? Like, I think that's the other thing is like, you and I, um, we don't always agree on what cult movies we love. We mostly do. I think you and I mostly have very similar tastes, but this is one of those movies that admittedly isn't necessarily something I probably would have sought out, but especially upon rewatching it, in preparation for the podcast, I definitely appreciated it more. I think it's a really good time to look at it now because 1968, here's a a movie where people culturally are starting to look at these drugs as forms of therapy and treatment. And of course, we know that that all got squashed. Those sorts of schools of thinking were shut down and people like Timothy Leary were written off as, you know, nutcases. They'd rather look at electroshock therapy and putting people on different kinds of drugs that can be sold at a higher price and prescribed by a doctor, right? So right now, if you look at my Facebook feed, now admittedly, I'm very, very interested in the subject. So the algorithms are probably you know, popping up this way for a reason, but between ketamine therapy, uh, mushroom microdosing, um, all of these sorts of ideas now, and a lot of the the Bay Area sort of the CEOs are all, you know, they're all microdosing on mushrooms and people are taking trips and going to ayahuasca retreats for consciousness um, recovery weekends and things. Now, I love all that. I think that is fabulous. I think it's uh, wonderful. I don't have much experience with it at all, but I'm definitely very interested in it. And when you look at this film and what they were exploring in 1968, they were already there. What we're looking at is being so new and and progressive. No, no, no. They already tried this and, you know, the powers that be shut it down. Yeah. And I think that it's really important to note that what makes this movie so significant is that it was made by such an establishment director as Otto Preminger. When you look at something like Head, which I referenced, or um, or The Trip, these were made by counterculture filmmakers already, people that were considered punk or the antithesis of the mainstream. But for someone like Otto Preminger, who was embraced by the industry, embraced by the movie going public, and is sort of like Academy bait filmmaker to be like, I'm going to make a movie that's all about how if we get on board this hallucinogenic trip and embrace one another, it can better the world. 
That's fascinating. And this is a very difficult movie to describe to people. And in in our first interview, I actually take a crack at trying to lay out the plot. So I'm not going to do it twice. So, you know, uh, just to save you. However, I will say that's really what this movie is about. It's about a group of people who we would probably view as establishment, Jackie Gleason, Carol Channing, even Frankie Avalon to some degree, this group of hippies and how they all sort of come together thanks to mind expansion and learn from each other and together grow to overthrow the world as we know it and then have a fabulous musical number. (laughs) (laughs) The nice thing about this particular treasure pick, you know, that's that's lesser known, is that it's available right now. And who knows for how long, but it is available right now on YouTube in its entirety. And it's actually uh, a pretty great upload. So yeah. if you would like, you could actually hit pause on the podcast, go check out this 90-minute trip of a movie, and then come back and listen to the rest of the show. That being said, if you don't, and you just want to hear more about the film first, and then go see it, uh, you could continue listening to the show. Because we, we are kind of moving forward as if many listeners may not have yet seen Skidoo. Which is is a rarity for us because usually we talk about movies with the understanding that you probably have. So if you haven't seen Carrie, we don't give a shit about your experience (laughs) because you're a flawed human. Um, But just like Skidoo's message of opening your mind today, we want to open your mind to a new kind of cult film. And that's Skidoo. And luckily, we're not alone on this journey. We have two people who seem to really enjoy a strange trip. And our first guest, in fact, is the reason we're doing this episode. I told you he was the person that I was watching the movie that led me to ask Peaches and then led us to want to do this. Uh, Yes, he is not only my boyfriend, but he is a writer, producer, an amazing artist. And, you know, we're going to talk to him right now. Brendan Haley talking about Skidoo. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, we cannot celebrate a cult film like Skidoo without talking to one of the cult members who makes it up. And we couldn't be more lucky this week to have this next guest because this is the person who inspired us to do this episode. Their enthusiasm for Skidoo made Peaches and I say, yes, we should Skidoo it. More than just a Skidoo enthusiast, through his production label Lonely Spectre, he is the creator, showrunner, and primary writer for the popular audio horror anthology series It Listens from the Radio. Additionally, he wrote and produced the hilariously haunted queer comedy short film Poltergaze, and recently wrapped up producing forthcoming feature film The Jessica Cabin. Under the banner of his art label Haley Doodles, he's created original art and graphic design for a diverse array of entities, including Ryan Murphy Productions, Epic Pictures, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and yes, he even has designed official event posters for us here at Midnight Mass. A celebrated writer, producer, filmmaker, graphic artist, and much, much more. Please welcome Brendan Haley. Oh my god, I 
I feel like that's that's so much more praise than I deserve. Michael does do the best intros, and any time a guest has to be introduced by me, they are definitely shortchanged. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brendan, we definitely set it up at the beginning of this that you are sort of the catalyst for us to do this episode, because this, I admit was sort of a blind spot in my cult film knowledge. I only have come to Skidoo in the last couple of months, whereas you and Peaches were a little more aware of it with more long-term. Let's talk about your origins with this movie. Where did your Skidoo enthusiasm begin? How did you find this film? It is a film that I've seen in the past, but it's one that I've sort of, in a way, rediscovered because of the pandemic. I, as a kid in the library finding this weird DVD labeled Skidoo was like, oh, I like that name. Um, what does that mean? And I, I was just sort of fascinated by it. Um, but sort of backtracking on that, my dad is a huge Carol Channing fan, enthusiast, same with like Sondheim and a bunch of different uh, sort of musical theater icons. Um, and uh, he even does impersonations of Carol Channing. And even this, before coming on to record with the both of you, told me a story of the time he met Carol Channing at his previous job. So it was going to happen at some point uh, that I would dive into her catalog. But while I was at the library this one time, after a conversation with my dad about her, I was like, okay, she seems wacky and wild. And I wouldn't have realized it then because I was still not out, even to myself. But uh, there, there was a queer appeal that she had to me. I, I picked up this weird movie. It wasn't even properly labeled. It was literally a black DVD case, no poster or anything, just a paper scrap that had the word Skidoo written on it. And I was like, oh, it has Carol Channing? Cool, I'll find out what this is. And I was completely blown away by it. Brendan, I think it's worth noting that you're the first guest of Midnight Mass to have been raised by two fathers. Oh, that's not true at all. <laughs> We've talked about this before, but I think there is, um, no, he's... Because we did not clarify that your dad actually, you actually have a mom and a dad, and they actually... I haven't even gotten into the portion talking about how he and his best friend wanted to do a drag show at one point in time. <laughs> um, it's, he's wonderful and fascinating. Um, but yeah, no, there there is definitely, like, a, a queer quality to some straight people in my life, and he is one of them. He's fabulous and larger than life. That's awesome. I think it's also worth noting for the listeners that you're quite young, and, you know, as someone who is in the cult-averse, um, this movie was introduced to me by older people 25 years ago, right? So we're talking very old people now because they were older 25 years ago. And so I like to think of myself as actually maybe one of the younger people who knows about Skidoo. But full disclosure, you're much younger than I am. So it's fascinating to me that, one, that you'd even be interested in this stuff because so many people your age... I hate to say it, but they're not really interested in the past. And, you know... Oh, and I will I will agree with you there. I hate people my own age. I, <laughs> I hate everyone of my own generation. It is interesting because since re-watching it several times over the course of the last couple of years, um, it's been interesting trying to find the community of fans around it that, that are also relatively within my age range because it doesn't, as you just said, it doesn't really happen. And especially with this film, I'm a huge fan of films from this era, the 1950s, 1960s, uh, really anything 
from the golden age of Hollywood onward is something that I'm going to want to watch. The cast alone is so fascinating. I might be one of the last, you know, as a Gen Xer who knows who these people are, you know. Did you know that Faye Dunaway was originally supposed to be in it? No. She was under contract with Otto Preminger, and I should just state this for everyone who's listening. The movie is not loved by a lot outside of its cult circle, and that's sort of how it's been since it came out. So after the success of Bonnie and Clyde, Faye Dunaway was basically like, oh, I, I won't do that. This is about, like, the reefer or the, the, the drugs, the acids, and refused to be in it, and Otto Preminger took her to court and sued her for breach of contract. I guess it was settled or something. Um, I didn't read the whole history on that. Do you know who she was supposed to play? I suspect Carol Channing's role of Flo. Because <laughs> she would have been pretty young in 1967, 60. I'm guessing that's when they shot it. I would assume that she was probably set to play the ingenue, the daughter of Carol Channing and Jackie Gleason. Yeah, this cast is really fascinating, right? Because if you are looking at the time this movie was made... This is a huge ensemble of, of television and movie stars all brought together under the banner of a, a huge filmmaker, Otto Preminger. He is Hollywood royalty, known for making big, big movies, and then this strange counterculture film. What's interesting about Otto as well is he has a tendency to be button-pushing in his catalog. Like, you have him tackling topics of rape and um, sexism and all sorts of different topics, and this one in particular is just one of the last... I would consider button-pushing moments of his career. This film clearly is silly. It's really fascinating when you consider who made it. That's one of the things. Otto Preminger made this movie. And then when you see who's in it, probably because it's Otto Preminger making it, the script had to have been just wild to read. And... Um, is part of your enjoyment of this movie connected to your love of drugs? <laughs> I can only speak for myself and say my enjoyment of this movie is more connected to an interest in drug culture in cinema because I went to a school that was very known for its place in counterculture. I went to Kent State University, which during the height of Vietnam had some very, you know, unfortunately famous incidents connecting to this moment in time. But from this particular era, from the rise of Vietnam and this sort of engagement with counterculture and, and hallucinogenic culture, we get a whole new kind of cult film. We get the trip. We get the monkeys making head. We get Easy Rider. We get Holy Mountain. And this movie is sort of like a weird Hollywood approach to that, right? And that, to me, is fascinating. That's also the very staunch divide and why so many people didn't like it is you have basically three different movies happening at the same time. You have this amazing acid-laced counterculture movie that is playing out with every character at one point in time, but primarily with the hippies and with Carol Channing and her daughter in the film, her cast daughter, Alexandra Hay. And then you have these other more reserved conservative films like the heist in uh, Alcatraz or even sort of an, uh, an Auntie Mame vibe going on with Carol Channing and her, she kind of has her own story going on separate from everyone else. So it's this mishmash of everything put together. And I think it's confusing, especially looking at the audience that it was marketed to. It's a, it's a very confusing film, which I personally think is the charm of it. But as someone in 1968 watching, I probably 
probably would have been like, oh, this is so bizarre and different and wild. And that would have been the, the appeal for me. Yeah, part of my love and appreciation for it is that randomness of it. Obviously, it's like many, many cult movies that we cover. It's alienating qualities are exactly why we like it now, right? So audiences went to see it. They didn't get it. They didn't like it. It wasn't like the movies they'd seen before. It didn't kind of follow the formula. And so it was panned. You know, it was a total flop. I mean, when you consider the um, level of, of A-list stars that are in this movie, like Hollywood royalty, it totally flopped. It was critically panned. But I'm actually honestly surprised, quite frankly, that it's not more of a cult movie, which is why I'm actually glad that Midnight Mass is doing it, because I think there might be some listeners out there who, you know, like Michael, weren't familiar with it. But these are listeners who are in the cultiverse. And this movie is on YouTube. It's easily accessible. And we encourage you to watch it because it is wild. And I think we should kind of maybe get into some of the wildness of it and also acknowledge maybe the time and place that this movie was made. We're talking about the late 60s. It's before the summer of love. And the people in this film, including the filmmaker, were starting to themselves experiment with LSD as a form of treatment. And we've come full circle because here we are now, tech CEOs are microdosing with acid and ketamine and, and mushrooms. And um, these folks were doing this back in the late 60s as a form of treatment and they were loving it and they were being turned on by it. And that's what this movie kind of really is. It's Otto saying, I want to make my kind of movie, the mobster stuff, the, the, the prison heist, that's very Otto Preminger. But with this sort of, you know, this acid turn on narrative. Not only was he making this acid movie, but in the trailer for this film, he has Dr. Timothy Leary, who was a known proponent of the LSD movement, LSD to expand the mind. This was a person who was a cult figure of a very different kind, not, not a cinema cult figure, although his presence has been felt in movies and stage like Hair and, you know, Hunter S. Thompson references him in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and all of this. But in the trailer for Skidoo, Dr. Timothy Leary, proponent of LSD culture, stands in front of the audience and says, I implore you to see Skidoo, and then is joined by sort of a cadre of other film stars who were not in the film, which, Brendan, you you know something about that, right? Yeah, so uh, it, it's funny because the, tra the trailer was cut like that because apparently early test audiences hated the film so much and there was all this sort of divisive attitude around it. The studio was worried, so they ended up pulling in Timothy Leary and Groucho Marx and all these different celebrities to provide praise and testimony in the trailer without showing or barely showing any footage from the film because they were afraid that if they showed too much of the film, people would be confused or people wouldn't be interested in it because it is dealing with free love. It's dealing with hippies. It's dealing with LSD. It's dealing with all these different things that are button-pushing topics of the time, but also sloshed together in one movie. It, it's, it's a fascinating way to cut a trailer. Honestly, it might be hard to cut a trailer because the movie is incredibly convoluted like when you think about like making a movie for people who are you know maybe on drugs the plot points of this film there's a lot of them and it's kind of hard to keep up with what's going on you know like if you miss something it's like what what are they doing what's happening why are they doing that there's a lot going on a lot to follow it's funny you bring that up because it there it's so frantic and and hectic of an energy like throughout you will have scenes that don't make sense because they're playing out on top 
top of other scenes, like in the beginning where you're flashing back to the character, the mob characters. Um, I, I can't oh, right. remember what even is going on. I think they're saving. I forgot about that. Carol Channing in the getaway car. Yeah. And they're having a scene with dialogue, quick dialogue on top of that. So it's impossible to sort of keep track. And the only way I can sort of associate it today is it feels like a movie, not saying that these two movies are exactly the same because they're not, but sort of like a Pineapple Express or a Zack and Miri make a porno today, the equivalent of like these films that you would put on, do drugs and just sort of let life happen. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? A strange Midnight Mass uh, sort of, and probably because we just covered it on Midnight Mass, but parts of this movie really reminded me of Shock Treatment. Of course, this film came out before Shock Treatment and a little bit anti-mame, where it was very ahead of its time and very predictive of the way the world would be, kind of before it was, right? So, like, it, you, you know, this is 1968. If you watch that beginning where... Carol Channing and um, Jackie Gleason are fighting over the remote control. It's such a brilliant opening to a film and they're channel surfing. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, it's just this brilliant scene with the two of them, husband and wife, fighting over who's taking control over the, the channel. And probably remote controls were a new thing. And they're both clicking the channels back and forth. And there's commercials with children smoking cigarettes and fat women, you know, holding up soda cans. And you'll never lose your man if you drink fat cola. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it was very much that sort of shock treatment criticism of, of our culture and mass media. And and that's right in the first few minutes of the movie. It doesn't play out the way um, shock treatment does where that's the whole focus of the movie. But I, I just thought, you know, this is another one of those films that was very ahead of its time. It was critical of stuff that people weren't wanting to be criticized for. And there's so much going on in this movie. It was one of those movies where because it's a deeper cut, and I think that for some of our listeners, people are going to be discovering it for the first time here. You know, when we have something like Carrie or Night of the Living Dead, which are both easily accessible but are part of the pop culture fabric, we don't really have to go into too much description of like, this is what this yeah. movie's about. Whereas this week, I was sort of like, how the fuck do you explain Skidoo <laughs> to someone? And like, I've, I've been trying to like come up with like what I consider to be like the quick beats of this movie. And essentially, if I had to quickly run through, the movie is about Jackie Gleason and Carol Channing, who are an old retired mob couple. And he gets pulled back into a gig by a mob boss who is also a corporate overlord who is referred to only as God. And he gets sent to prison to whack somebody. Meanwhile, his daughter falls in line with the free love movement and like hooks up with John Philip Law who like who wouldn't at the time and Carol Channing becomes interested in the hippies unaware that her husband's like off on this assassination attempt but then LSD enters the fray Frankie Avalon's there for some reason and then at the end of the movie I mean it's not a spoiler so much but like the whole movie is like leading up to the hippies going to overthrow God which is not supposed to be God but seems very symbolic that they named him God I don't know was that close did I do all yeah. right no I think that's a great way to put it at least for me this film is an apocalypse story it's very biblical and I'm talking outside of just naming Groucho Marx God um, because you have Jackie Gleason essentially going into the bowels of this prison of Alcatraz and that's sort of a metaphor for hell. He's going into hell to speak to Satan while it, none of this is necessarily connected. Again, it feels like three films sloshed together, but you have that going on while the hippies are sort of playing the role as 
the chosen people, question mark? And then both plots essentially converge on God's yacht, which is also, I should point out, John Wayne's private yacht that they they rented for the production, um, and they overthrow God. It, it feels kind of biblical to me anytime I watch it now. The overarching battle here is much like anti-mame between the culture of the open-minded versus the closed-minded. And Jackie Gleason's character is very much an Archie Bunker, you know, before Archie Bunker, that sort of American, that archetype of the conservative father who likes his meat and potatoes and this is the way it is. And then, you know, he's kind of battling his daughter and and his wife to some degree as sort of being these more colorful, creative, open-minded sort of people who want to have experiences. And, and of course, you know, what wins in the end is the art and the colorful people and the creatives. But I will say this, unlike Auntie Mame, where those folks are presented as pretty fucking fabulous, you know, the kind of people you want to emulate, you want to be Auntie Mame. That, that's not how it, it is in Skidoo. They're almost as clownish and ridiculous and stupid. It, in many ways, it reminded me of Russ Meyer films as far as sort of like, Um, maybe a Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. You know, if you've seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I feel like Skidoo is, you know, um, kind of more in line with that than a lot of films. I think there's also something to be said about how we have cast members in this movie like Burgess Meredith or Frank Gorshwin, Otto Preminger as well, who are all coming from the Batman television series. These are the people playing the Penguin and the Riddler and and Mr. Freeze. And there's kind of a through line between those two tones because this movie is kind of a feature-length Batman episode, minus Batman, of course. Yeah, and it, it even looks like Batman. You know, like the way it's shot, you know, it, it, it's not subtle. It's like, the, the, especially the stuff in the prison, like the costumes, the props, the um, the, the sort of the, the, the vegetable bags that they use, you know, they're, they're very cartoony, they're very comic booky. Um, it gets more and more Batman, I feel like, as the movie goes on. Yes, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, uh, Frank Gorshin, and Otto Preminger all appeared in the 1966 Adam West Batman series. And beyond just that connection and, and, and the idea that this world is very comic booky, if we look at sort of the anti-establishment message of Skidoo, I think the lens of time and the lens of camp have kind of altered the way we think of the Adam West Batman series. But transitioning this kind of like dark, gritty, noir character from the, the pages of the comic book to this sort of like goofy Adam West version of the character during the height of the 60s, an anti-establishment movement was so not a mistake. Like, you know, they were sort of making fun of Batman as cop. And we just have since embraced it because of how silly it is. So I guess those two are sort of like symbiotic works. I'm kind of fascinated by that. Uh, We're listing off the cast and talking about the cast. If you don't know this movie, it almost probably sounds like, what the hell? How is that possible? I was looking to see like, well, who have we not mentioned? We haven't mentioned Mickey Rooney, who is in this movie. Mickey Rooney's actually pretty featured in this movie. I mean, the cellmate who actually brings in the acid, who is also the tech nerd who figures out how to use the television as a radio, or no, use, yeah, the radio and the television to communicate with Mickey Rooney, (laughs) is this guy named Austin Pendleton, who I had to look up because I'm like, okay, I know that guy. Who the hell is that guy? He is in so many things, but I can't remember why I know him so well, but I can picture him as an old man. You know what I mean? Like watching him in movies. And this is a very young version of him. 
Um, so anyways, I was just wondering, like, do either of you know why I'm so familiar with Austin Pendleton? I mean, he was in Short Circuit. I guess that's it. I mean, I think he's just one of those people who's been in a ton of movies. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Skidoo was his his introducing credit. That makes sense. He was young and, and also very good. So we're three fabulous queer men. Let's talk about the magic that is Carol Channing. She apparently never saw the movie. That's fascinating to me. Um, especially since every single scene she's in she is the focal point whether that's written or not the part where she tries to seduce frankie avalon while it is bananas is possibly one of my favorite scenes of cinema just because it is wild it makes no sense and yet she's so committed and so fabulous her performance is so great and if you haven't really understood the magic that's carol channing you know how like um you know, we have these queer icons and sometimes people don't get it. Like young people are like, well, what do you mean, Judy Garland? I don't get it. And then you're like, no, you need to watch this. You need to watch that. You need to listen to this concert, this album, like get with the program. I really think Skidoo is a great movie to understand the spectacle of talent, comedic talent, performing talent that is Carol Channing. Like not only are all her costumes great, but she works them so fabulously. Like you said, the seduction scene is just it's hilarious and kind of scandalous. You know, like when, when when your daughter walks in on her, like she's wearing that transparent brassiere and you totally see her titties. I tried to find any kind of comment or anything in the history of this film about that. And the only things I can find that are from the press or from audiences are the fascination with her, obviously, and the singing credits, but nothing about how scandalous that scene is and how she's basically naked. Speaking of the singing, Carol Channing gets one of the biggest moments of this movie when the hippies finally overcome God's boat. Carol Channing bursts in in this amazing draggy pirate outfit and sings the title song. Terrible wig. Yeah, terrible wig. But she takes it off. It's revealed to be a wig. (laughs) Um, But what I think is deeply interesting is not only is the scene just insane, it's important to note that this film really up until this point was not a musical. There are a few like slight musical moments, (laughs) but then we get this grand musical finale with Carol Channing and like hippie pirates and that's just sort of the magic of Skidoo. From scene to scene you don't really know what you're going to get. You two mentioned the seduction scene with Frankie Avalon. There's that amazing scene where Jackie Gleason drops acid and sees the spinning head of Groucho Marx on top of a screw. So even though there is a plot to this movie it also feels sort of like a trip in the way that it's an amalgamation of scenes and I want to hear from both of you. What are your favorite scenes in this movie? Do you have a favorite scene? I feel like there are so many scenes I love in this film. It's impossible to pick. I'm going to have to go with the boat at the ending because that is so crazy and so full of this energy that is kind of isolated because the rest of the film is one thing and then you have this fabulous musical number at the end with Carol Channing. How could I not pick that? It's somehow a finale that works because the movie is so nuts that leading up to that point, you're kind of like, you, you, there's a number of times where you have to go like, oh, okay, that this is what we're doing. This is the movie. And so by the time they, they're they storming the boat and she's singing the song, you're like, 
this is fabulous. Like, this is, this is great. Right. I'm surprised I haven't gotten high to this movie already. I'm surprised too. But in a way, I don't think <laughs> you need to. You know, the fact that they were so into it. And maybe that's my favorite scene, Michael, to answer your question. I think Jackie Gleason tripping and watching their special effects that they used at that time to sort of simulate, a, you know, a hallucinogenic experiences. Not only is it fascinating from a filmmaking point of view, and I think actually very well done, but Jackie Gleason playing that part and kind of his reactions, I just loved it because he's just going like, oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah. Brendan's scene is also probably my other favorite because it's so satisfying. And Carol Channing singing that song, it's an earworm, you know, skedaddle, yeah. skedaddle, da 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 Skittle. Is that going to be the next Terror Vault, Peaches? <laughs> yeah, I would love to do this new song in Terror Vault. What does that song even mean? Peaches and I were even texting today, and she asked me, you know, what the best recording means we should use tonight. And I said, well, Skidoo's the thing to do. And she's like, girl, get it together. <laughs> like, <laughs> But you're right, it sticks in your brain. I have to say a scene that I really love that makes absolutely no sense, as if there's a logical flow to the rest of this film, is when the prison guards are high and they imagine the barrels in the prison yard are dancing. For some reason, that just really delights me. Like, I think that that's great. Yeah, they're like barrels, but they're also tin cans. Like, it's so bizarre. Yeah. And, And the fact that they had the dance choreography, you know, actually, that's true. Before you get to the finale, they do, you know, they do trip out and see sort of these Busby Berkeley style, um, you know, dance numbers. (laughs) <laughs> so there is some foreshadowing to the musical finale. I also am very curious how much of, since we're talking about the acid trip scenes, this movie came about because Otto Preminger dropped acid with Timothy Leary. So anytime I watch it now, I'm kind of curious if those scenes are what he was seeing, if what they were both seeing, or if that's something that was just more palatable to an audience. Well, what's interesting, if that's true, remember one of the the male prison guards envisions the Green Bay Packers naked. Yes. So exactly. what, what was going on with Otto Preminger's trip, if that's accurate, Brendan? And that actually brings me to a question, because obviously when we watch a movie from uh, other eras, there are things that don't age so well. And I do think that there are some problematic moments in Skidoo. I mean, certainly there's like a little bit of gay fr- gay fear at the beginning of the movie, as well as just, you know, some, some bro-affirming language later. But then as the trip sets in and everybody is embraced, it's sort of like the movie is like, no, everything that came before was wrong. And now everything that you see now is right. So I'm almost like, are the problematic elements of the movie really that problematic? Because what happens later is Skidoo tells us just love, right? Is that it? Like, do you get what I'm saying or no? Yeah, I think it makes sense because the filmmakers and the movie kind of suggest that, you know, the, the world is a better place when you've opened your mind and that the way to do that is through taking this trip. Unlike, you know, I compared the film earlier to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the lesson is these drugs, this lifestyle, this is going to lead to mass murder and destruction, right? And I love that about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but it is dark. It is a Manson family finale for the people that partake in that lifestyle. That is not what Skidoo is 
at all. Skidoo is, this is going to lift you up. This is freedom. This is escaping, you know, literally escaping the prison you're living in. Like the symbolism isn't that subtle, right? The, the prison metaphor is there. And the God metaphor, as you suggested, is there. You know, it's all about breaking out. And even in the end, I thought, and this is a spoiler alert, or you know, maybe I won't spoil it, but I, I loved the way that they keep one foot in sort of a potential ugly reality where you don't know if the daughter has actually been shot to death or not. And knowing the tone of the movie, you're kind of like, I don't know. I mean, that all plays out very nicely. And I think, Michael, your point is completely accurate. The LSD part of this film is not included in order to criticize or judge drug use. In fact, it's really promoting it, which probably was controversial. Apparently, Otto Preminger was inspired a lot by his son's life in this counterculture hippie style, I guess. And um, that sort of contributed to a lot of those scenes and the acid trips and I guess a lot of the movie in general. I, it's hard to find a lot of facts on this film's history out there just because it's not well documented. But I did manage to find that in, in an interview with him, uh, I think, before he died. You know, you're right about finding stuff out about it. And, and the way I, I learned about the Carol Channing component, I should note, it was not from something on the internet. I was speaking to um, an old queen friend today uh, who loves Skidoo. A shout out to Mad Magda uh, from San Francisco. Big, big fan of Skidoo. And so I was actually talking to Magda about their relationship with the movie. And what I found out was it has actually remained fairly popular, which is probably why I knew it. Because regionally, as you know, some of it takes place in San Francisco. You also know that San Francisco is, uh, you know, LSD never went out of style here. It's always been popular. It's always been part of our culture. And then, um, quite frankly, da I'm sorry, Mad Magda or David was explaining that not only did the Roxy bring it back, you know, the Roxy Cinema, where Michael and I did our Midnight Mass presentation, not only did the Roxy Cinema bring it back as a midnight movie and make it popular again, Magda was telling me that the Red Vic Movie House, and that's where I think I first saw it, because after it was brought to my attention early on in Midnight Mass years, I think I saw it at the Red Vic, intoxicated, a long time ago, but apparently it played regularly at the Red Vic. And so Skidoo in the Bay Area actually has a fan base. Now, Carol Channing came to San Francisco and she was doing a sort of city arts and lecture type presentation. Like it wasn't a stand-up show. It was like she was in, in, in conversation, right? So David, Mad Magda, when the Q&A comes, gets his chance to ask a question. And he asks her, what does she think of Skidoo? Because he loves it so much. And she tells the audience, I've never seen that film. I was told not, never to see it. And I've never watched it. Like, she does not, she's serious in her, you know, like, it's Carol Channing, but she kind of, he said that her tone changed. So, I don't know. I don't know if she ever saw it. I don't know. But that this story from this queen, Mad Magda, you know, I'm assuming it's true. And uh, I thought that was worth noting. Nothing fierces me harder than a second-hand Carol Channing story. Uh, <laughs> who knows what her relationship with that movie was, but it does sound like she steered clear of it because we know that when this movie came out, 
pretty much everybody did. You know, when Brendan was talking about the trailer, how they had Timothy Leary and Sammy Davis Jr. and some of these people pop up in the trailer to promote the movie on behalf of Otto Preminger, those people were in the trailer because the people who had already made the movie really didn't have much more to say about it then, and it had barely come out. So it's sort of interesting to hear that even all those years later, she steered clear of it because that's, to me, a little sad because, you know, with cult films, sometimes people want to put distance and then they come back around. You know, we see Elizabeth Berkley finally embracing showgirls. We see the Faye Dunaways never embracing Mommy Dearest. And then we have like the whole like spectrum in between of people who have always believed in their movie or discover later. We've heard many stories here on Midnight Mass about people who didn't even know their movies were popular until they went to conventions. So it, it kind of is a bummer to me that Carol Channing is the most fabulous part of this film and she never really got to celebrate, mm. especially with queers like us, how fabulous we think she is. With that in mind and thinking of relationships with the movie, Brendan, you first saw this film when you got this weird version of it from the library that had no label. No, no, it was literally a black DVD with a piece of paper that said Skidoo, Carol Channing, in parentheses. <laughs> you get this real, like, bunk version of Skidoo from the library. You watch it then, and then you sort of rediscover it all these years later. How has your opinion of the movie changed, if at all? I think my initial watching of it was already kind of tainted because... I should add, I had the flu while I watched it, and there's only a handful of movies that I have that experience with, so there already was a delirious quality to watching it for me. But I think as a kid, probably right before middle school, watching this film, it didn't make sense to me for a lot of reasons. I think there were some things that I found attractive, like Carol Channing, some of the um, free love qualities of the film, because, again, I was in the closet at the time, Whereas revisiting the film now, I feel I have more of an affinity for it because I understand so much of what the film is trying to do, regardless of how mangled some of the tactics in the production are. It's charming and it's about counterculture, so naturally it's kind of interesting to me. I'm so glad that we were able to have you on the show. To be totally honest, I had forgotten about Skidoo until Michael asked me, have you ever heard of this movie Skidoo? And I was like, oh yeah, actually I have. And one of the reasons I'd forgotten about it is because it was something that that people were talking about in the early days of my Midnight Mass programming when I was programming more old movies, old cult movies. And so people had had let me know about it and I saw it a long time ago, but I haven't thought about it for years and years and years. So the fact that you, a younger person, had discovered this movie the way you discovered it and then that you brought it to the Midnight Mass podcast and now here we are talking about it, it's very... Fabulous, and I hope that this podcast that 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 our listeners are turned on to checking out Skidoo, and and you know I'm sure there are people listening who are very familiar with it and have seen it maybe multiple times, but I also know that there's a bunch of people out there who are hearing about this movie for the first time. So I think we can't thank you enough, Brendan. But more than that, we also have to thank you for being an official family member here. This podcast is built by a very, very small village. Myself, Michael, and Heather, of course, being the main builders, um, Heather being our our behind-the-scenes audio designer. But you have contributed brilliant, beautiful artwork that we've used both in marketing, like our posters for the Phantom of the Paradise show, marketing for our event, but also marketing for the podcast itself with the Creature from the Black Lagoon artwork and your beautiful shock treatment artwork. So I guess the big question I have before we sign off is, 
will there be skidoo artwork? It's been done for a couple months now, and I've been dragging my feet because uh, I have two more hippies to illustrate. Well, you better finish. I know. I, I will finish it for, for this episode because okay. uh, what more of a serendipitous occasion to unleash skidoo artwork onto the world than having it as a companion piece to Midnight Mass. And thank you so much for the praise. That's so sweet. Well, of course. And that's very exciting. Yeah, we're very thrilled. And because you make so much art and uh, a lot of it is available out there for people who need to adorn their walls with something new and fresh and exciting, where can people purchase prints? Ah, well, you can purchase them on my Etsy. It's Haley Doodles on Etsy. Or it might show up as Haley Doodles 20 because it was launched in 2020. And that's H-A-L-E-Y. H-A-L-E-Y. Doodles, the the regular spelling. (laughs) All one word. Rhymes with poodles. (laughs) Well, thank you, Brendan, so much. We were so glad that we could skidoo this with you. I'm so honored to uh, have skidooed with the both of you. So uh... Skadoodle. <laughs> it's devolved into madness. <laughs> and, and, and the Midnight Mass listeners have your Haley skidoodle to look forward to. So, uh, all right. I won't... Uh... I won't say it again. I will skadiddly dap a doo out of here. Oh, God, I'm turning into an old man. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Bye. Okay, and that was the fantastic Brendan Haley, not only a friend of the podcast, but really family. And, um, you know, one thing I really like about this is that uh, we live in this sort of um, cult movie universe, uh, but we we did get to be a little bit more personal uh, because this was someone that, uh, you know, we're both close with. But of course, you're especially close with because it's your boyfriend and got me to thinking. I'm like, huh, I know I've talked about Niha a little bit on the podcast, obviously. Who I love. Oh, yeah, me too. And um, of course, I love Brendan. Yeah, I'm like, oh, God, we'll have to have Niha on at some point just to keep it in the family. Again, Brendan, so great that he brought this movie to us and was the one who suggested it and allowed for us to go on this trip. Uh, so many things about the interview I love. I especially love that he was introduced to Carol Channing um, by his father, who I'm assuming you've had the pleasure of meeting. Yes, I love his dad. And what's really funny is his dad has a wide range of interests, but his dad is a voice actor who has worked a lot in the industry. And for those of you who grew up in the liquid television era of MTV, Brendan's dad was the voice of The Max, you know, the big purple <laughs> hero. And so if you if you remember The Max, as I do, and of course, I mean, he is also... I even remember yeah, it. Na- now in my life, but The Max has a very gruff, like, you know, serious, like film noir kind of voice. So to think then of Brendan's dad also like just really reveling in the Carol Channing of it all is just delightful to me. But I think it speaks to sort of the mystique of this movie yeah. and how the movie was sort of withheld. And when I think about other movies that I had to sort of like really fight hard to see, they they were things like Chatterbox, you know, uh, actually directed by the same director who did Reform School Girls, you know, things I'd read about, but they weren't really uh, widely distributed. So they were hard to find this. When you think it's could do, it's like, wait a second, this is a 
a tour filmmaker with literally one of the biggest all-star casts you could ask for, yet this movie was tough to find. Although you just brought up a moment where I'm going to do a little commercial for us since you mentioned Reform School Girls. If those of you who are out there listening don't know, Peaches and I recently were part of the Reform School Girls remastered Blu-ray put out by Vinegar Syndrome. We are part of a documentary that is on that disc and we talk about women in prison films and uh, truly Reform School Girls was kind of difficult to find for a while as well. So I feel like it was just a good moment to plug. And Reform School Girls was one of those movies that I tried for years and years to book at Midnight Mass and was not able to get the theatrical rights to screen it. Funny story about that. I booked it once. I don't even know if you know this story, Michael. And the print showed up and it was a movie called Reform School Girl. Just one. <laughs> yeah, it was just one. And it was a juvenile delinquency film from the 50s and it was too late. So we did a midnight mass to a movie that no one's seen called Reform School Girl. How was it? With, of course, an, an audience who showed up to see probably, you know, Wendy O. Williams and Pat asked. Right. It was fine. Um, luckily, back then, I think Midnight Mass was such a free-for-all and so wild that by the time that we knew that it wasn't the movie that I wanted, we were able to switch gears enough with the marketing and kind of get the word out. So it was fine. You know, Reform School Girls is just one of my favorite movies of all time. Same. It's so great. Um, I'm so flattered that Michael and I are included. We're really featured. I watched the uh, documentary that we're in. I did watch it last night, Michael. Oh, great. It's really, really fun. There's a moment between you and I that I'm surprised they left in because uh, we were we were kind of, you and I were getting a little punch drunk and a little more silly, or at least I was. Nihat actually was quite shocked by um, my behavior because it was when you were talking about the big prison tower, you said basically that it was a big dick, which, you know, makes sense, you know? Yeah. And then I went on to say like, all you ever think about is dicks, you know, this and that. And, you know, you were laughing. <laughs> I go further and say that you would sit on it and this and that. Anyway, that's all in the documentary. So uh, if you if you want to see me being wildly inappropriate, um, but Michael, you come off looking so classy compared to me. I'm just trash. If people who are listening <laughs> to this show don't know by now that our dynamic is we're just ridiculous with each other, like... Yeah. One, I'm not offended. No, you're not trash. But yes, you are trash because it's part of your brand. Like, you know, <laughs> if people saw us off camera and off mic, I dig in with you more often than not. But I just, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's but your job in many ways when you're when you're performing next to a giant clown lady is to be, quote unquote, the straight man. Yeah. And you do a great job of that. But I, I really like the Reform School Girls We'll get back to Skidoo in a moment. The Reform School Girls release, the documentary that's featured in it is really great, not just because of Michael and I, but they really interview so many of the different women that were in the movie. Right. The stories about Sybil Danning, Pat Ast, Wendy O. Williams. Of course, they interview the director, Tom DeSimone. And it's just, you're going you're gonna to love it. Um, that being said, out now. promise, yeah. promise, promise, promise. Midnight Mass is going to cover Reform School Girls yes. at some point. Well, and yes, the Blu-ray is out now, so you can go see what we're talking about. And I do think it all ties back to Skidoo, because not only does Skidoo have a great prison number, you know, in sequence, True. In the movie, but both of these movies in their own way are counterculture of the time. When Reform School Girls comes out, it's very punk, and punk is like sort of a big counterculture movement of the 70s and 80s. This movie, of course, engages with the hippie and free love movement, the anti-Vietnam movement. They're really all about overthrowing the powers that be. And in the end, 
end of both movies, it happens. And I think that one of the things I'm really enjoying about our exploration of Skidoo is just, for as wacky as it is, how important its themes are. I mentioned this as well, but I'll bring it up again. We talk about it in the interviews. It reminds me a lot of revisiting Anti-Mame, where there was this sort of like, I, I feel like I was hit over the head with this sort of knowledge of like, shit, we're still dealing with this stuff. We're still grappling with these issues. And some of these sort of culture wars, they're exactly the same as they were. And um, Skidoo very much feels that way. And uh, even things like the fact that uh, there's sequences in a prison feel very relevant to today. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And luckily, in addition to Brendan, we were joined by somebody else who I would argue might be the biggest Skidoo fan in the world. I do want to give a shout out to Jesse Merlin, who is a friend of the podcast. I also had interviewed Jesse back in my Dead for Filth days. Jesse prominently featured in the Reanimator musical. He's been in movies like Beyond the Gates and I Blame Society. And I knew that Jesse liked this movie and I reached out to him and I was like, hey, do you want to talk to us about Skidoo? And Jesse's like, look, I would love to, but I would be remiss if I didn't introduce you to this other person who I consider to be a Skidooologist. And it was through Jesse that we were introduced to our next guest. So I wanted to just give Jesse a big shout out. And it proved to be true because this person who we're about to talk to really, really knows a lot about this movie and knows a lot about the counterculture surrounding this movie. And I cannot wait for you to hear our chat with him. So we're going to go talk to Richard Metzger right now. Sun power, gun power, atomic power, fun power, power power, flower power, go power, and low power. And if power is all they really understand, we take the power of the flower and the power of the dove. We put them both together and we love them to death. Mm, and welcome back listeners i am so excited for our next guest and uh the fact that he's joining us to unpack this trip of a movie he was the host and creator of the television documentary series disinformation which was referred to by the los angeles times as the punk rock version of 60 minutes and subsequently authored and edited such books such as 2002's disinformation the interviews which features unedited interviews from some of his guests on the show and in 2003's The Book of Lies, The Disinformation Guide to Magic and the Occult, which was an anthology of occult essays. His interest in investigations into the subversive has seen him interview such luminaries as Kenneth Anger, Grant Morrison, Kembra Fowler, and more. Currently, he writes for and runs the sensational DangerousMinds.net. Please welcome host, creator, author, and much more, Richard Metzger. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yay. Well, I uh, must confess to listeners that you were introduced to us as a skidoologist, and I feel like that is a very uh, limited group of studiers of this, this film. So I'm excited to dig into this movie with you, and I feel like the most obvious place to begin is the beginning. When did you first discover Skidoo? I was a very big Marx Brothers fan when I was a kid, so I'm going to guess that it was via a Groucho Marx biography. But I was also a very big Timothy Leary had when I was a teenager. It could have been through reading a, a, a biography of Timothy Leary. Maybe it was a Batman-related thing. I honestly don't know. I've known about it for a long time. I wanted to see it forever, right? 
And uh, I owned the soundtrack at least a decade before I ever saw the film. Ah, that's actually really interesting because we have a few um, scenarios. Actually, Shock Treatment, which which we did not too long ago, was one where we we interviewed a number of people who had the music before they saw the film. And so they were imagining what the film was like based on the soundtrack. Right. Um, yeah, so really interesting. And Skidoo, in many ways, is less likely that just because Shock Treatment is a musical and Skidoo, is it a musical? Not really, but at the very end, it kind of becomes a musical, right? So um, I have to ask, what was on the soundtrack? The soundtrack, well, it includes the, uh, when they're flipping the television around. And oh, like yeah. Commercials and the smoke, smoke, smoke and all that kind of stuff. So yes. that's there. And of course, uh, Carol Channing's uh, number. And, um, and as everybody knows, the famous thing about Skidoo is that the credits were, in fact, sung by Harry Nilsson. Right. right. Who, did the, who did the soundtrack? Well, I had also heard, you know, Nielsen, of course, being his own counterculture figure, but he wasn't the first musician that uh, Preminger approached. He actually invited Bob Dylan to do the soundtrack. He showed the movie to Bob Dylan at his home. Bob Dylan was like, I need to think about it and asked to watch the movie again alone. Had no interest in the movie, but apparently just walked around Preminger's house to take architectural notes. So when he built his own house or something, he could steal <laughs> from it. So, so you have the soundtrack. When you finally see the movie, was the the mental image that you had kind of concocted with, with this record at all in line with what eventually you saw on screen? Yes, very <laughs> much so. Um, I'm an aficionado of, of this kind of film, right? So um, I love uh, candy you know, Modesty Blaze, you know, that this sort of thing, uh, The Magic Christian. So, it, it, yes, it did very much so. One of the things that I think that gets across to someone who hasn't seen this, the feel for this film, is it feels like a Batman episode, by and large, mm-hmm. right? It's got that, it's very camp, it's, uh, the direction is very um, minimal, you know, he's not really doing a lot with the camera, um, and it's full of bright colors, right? So that, that Batman pop art aesthetic is certainly seen in Skidoo. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that that's something we uh, both Michael and I commented on w- was the way it's shot. And especially for such a prolific, you know, auteur, you know, a, a filmmaker, um, it does feel more like television and a specific kind of television like Batman, not just because of the cast, but also because of the feel, the look, the tone. OK, so. I started booking Midnight Movies back in the late 90s, and I didn't realize that possibly part of its being known as a film, as a cult movie, is somewhat regional. Because when I started booking Midnight Mass, there were a number of people, including someone who worked at the theater that we worked at, who kept saying, Skidoo, Skidoo, you got to book Skidoo. We love Skidoo. And so I actually saw Skidoo in my early 20s as someone who was being told, alongside a lot of other things, that this is a cult movie. What I realized later is not many people know this cult movie outside of San Francisco. And even now in San Francisco, I would say it's very generational. You know, if you, it, it hasn't lasted the test of time. Like, so many cult movies do. That's what makes them cult movies. And I guess my question to you is, upon re-watching it, I'm baffled by that because it's got the cast. 
Carol Channing. I mean, chewing the scenery in amazing costumes. It's got LSD. It's got the themes of it are as relevant to today, if not more so than ever before. So why do you think it is that this film has kind of disappeared? And and hopefully maybe we're helping people rediscover it. You know, the official story pretty much is that um, Preminger was uh, ashamed by the, his daughter is or was a judge. Uh, didn't want it out. So oh. I think it was more the estate that kept it under wraps. And I, I believe that's why. Wow. Do you suppose, you know, you mentioned The Magic Christian, which I love that movie. And until you mentioned it here, I'm like, oh yeah, there's so much in The Magic Christian's DNA that also matches up with Skidoo. Because you have this sort of amazing ensemble cast, most of whom are known for some sort of counterculture identity. For those of you who don't know, The Magic Christian is a movie starring Ringo Starr and Peter Sellers and uh, a, a host of Python comedians and British royalty, film royalty, not actual British royalty. <laughs> and it's also about this um, kind of breaking down of, of norms. And we see a lot of this in this time. This is one of our first true like psychedelic movies, if you can call Skidoo that, uh, of Midnight Mass and how that's its own kind of cult film but they have a very short life. You know, we get the trip, we get the monkey's head, we get the magic Christian, we get Skidoo, and then they sort of fade away. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, is that also a contributing factor to its sort of disappearance from the zeitgeist conversation? And why are these movies so sidelined? I think it takes a certain kind of person to like Skidoo, basically, or the magic <laughs> Christian, or Modesty Blaze, you know, these films, they're, you know, they all, they, all of them have a reputation as being bad films. And they are, right? But they're also fascinating and they're always entertaining. They don't, mm. they're not boring. They might be bad on a technical level or that most people might find them a boring, but they're actually extremely entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think your answer about the, the, the intentional um, uh, attempt to make the movie go away it makes more sense to me because as a film programmer, it was very difficult to figure out how to screen it. And so the Red Vic here in San Francisco screened it. The Roxy in San Francisco uh, screened it very famously. Um, so it did get screened here. And I, I believe the Castro Theater even screened it. Um, but I do think that when someone's actively trying to bury a movie or withhold it, and I know very well as a filmmaker what that yeah. can feel like, it works. You know, I mean, people are afraid of lawsuits and, you know, things go away. And especially if uh, even if she if the daughter just withheld it from the more modern means of seeing a movie like, you know, VHS, DVD, cable television. Boom. There you go. It really becomes hard. And we've seen this with Russ Meyer movies, a whole a whole slew of movies that that are, are more challenging to find. That being said, it is on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> the entire is on YouTube. The entire yeah. movie is on YouTube. It's being pumped into their homes like water or electricity. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, and sometimes doing a cult movie podcast, you know, Michael and I have to track these things down in order to review them. I'll tell you, it was a big relief to find out the entire movies on YouTube. Who knows how long it will be there? But it, it, you know, I just want our listeners to know you should go watch it. Go watch it now. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm wondering what you think of the extraordinary cast of this film, because 
it is kind of insane when you look at who's in the film. And, and I just wonder if you could speak to that. I know it's a big question. It's a very big question, right? And it was, it's a very big cast. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, in, a, in a sense, you know, uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world on acid. Yeah. Right? So that there's, there's an all-star cast. I mean, the idea of seeing Jackie Gleason having an acid trip, right, is extremely attractive to me, I have yeah. to admit. Um, you know, and, and the idea of Groucho Marx playing a, a, a mafia don or even a character just named God is also amazing. And then you have all of these uh, people who appeared on Batman, Frank Gorshin, Burgess Meredith, Cesar Romero, um, Rudy Gernreich, who did the costumes for uh, Skidoo. He was also in Batman as well. He had a cameo mm-hmm. role in Batman. And of course, the director, Otto Kreminger, played Mr. Freeze. You know, so it, it's fascinating that he was sort of pulling, you know, those three guys out of the the, the bat unemployment line, as it were, <laughs> and, um, and and putting them in this film. The obvious campness of, of the cast is really reinforced by the, I, I would say, the inclusion of, of those three people. Jackie Gleason doing acid. I mean, there's nothing more camp, really, than that. I mean, actually, there are, but it's pretty out there. But you also have some other people in it. There's like a uh, future James Bond villain, uh, Richard Keel, right? Mm-hmm. Who played uh, Jaws. No, uh, I think two uh, James. My favorite James Bond villain is Jaws. Right. Yeah. And then you have Michael Constantine, who was the principal, right? Mm-hmm. In uh, room, you know, the, the earnest principal in room 222. And in, and in this one, he's playing a rapist. Yeah. An incarcerated rapist, you know? Who has one um, of the weirdest lines in the whole movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't think we should tell people what that line no, is. No, they should be surprised. Discover. Yeah. It, it, it shocked me upon rewatching it. So, yeah. Let's see. Fred Clark, right? right. Fred Clark was a very well known character actor of the time. Um, he was in a lot of TV shows. He was in uh, you know, Twilight Zone. He played um, Dwight Babcock in Auntie Mae, right? So, he was a very familiar face to, to audiences of that time as well. But there's one person that I wanted to point out who's in this film who is a fascinating character, and that's Daniela Luna, the woman who played God's mistress. Yeah. Oh, yes. And an incredibly gorgeous creature, right? It just, you cannot take your eyes off her. So it's no surprise. And it's, she's not really remembered so much anymore, but she was the first black supermodel. Ah, wow. That makes sense. I mean, she is stunning. Daniela Luna, right? She was the first black woman to be on the cover of Vogue magazine, but she was also in four films and only four films that I'm aware of. Right. And they're all notable. Right. If you're going to ever be if you're going to be in four films. Right. You would want them to be Skidoo. Uh-huh. She's in Fellini's Satyricon. Amazing. And um, she's also in this really oddball um, cult film. that's It's very much like after you've watched Kenneth Anger's films and after you've um, watch the holy mountain and you want more of that flavor there's a an adaptation that was done in 1972 of salome right by a guy named carmelo bene Verushka is also in it it's utterly and completely insane that is also on youtube in its entirety there are no uh subtitles right wow. but here's okay. the thing even when you've got them it makes no more sense <laughs> is it called salome Salome, yeah. I okay. dig that, though. Carmelo Bene, B-E-N-E. Okay. Oh, like- Speaking of the, the great cast in this, right, uh, it's a little-known factoid that Preminger originally wanted Frank Sinatra to play the Groucho Marx role. Oh, wow. 
So Frank Sinatra, which it, it, you know, it, it, and it was written for him, right? Groucho uh, Marx only came into the film three days before they started filming those scenes with him. You know, that makes actually that makes sense. In some ways, I think I can picture Frank Sinatra almost more. You know, the way yeah. the, char- the the way the characters referred to as and described, and putting Groucho Marx in that God Mafia boss character is more of a stretch than Frank Sinatra. But it's kind of delicious, too, because Groucho Marx, this in a wild movie, is one of the most understated characters. He's great. Yeah, Yeah. which is great. You know, and that's a rarity for him. He's he rarely is uh, the the smallest one in the movies. Not very well known, but screenwriter Terry Southern apparently contributed also to the script. Right. I found that on a um, an online uh, obituary. Right. For uh, uh, William Doran Cannon. Right, the, the screenwriter, you know, the acknowledged screenwriter, and also Rob Reiner was hired to sort of punch up the hippie dialogue. Right, he was a member of a, a comedy improv group called The Committee at that time. And I read an interview with him online, and he would say that a premature would literally fire him and then rehire him every single day. Of- that just is interesting to me because of the All in the Family connection. Jackie Gleason is Archie Bunker in this movie. It just also shows that maybe the making of Skidoo is as wild as the movie Skidoo. What I think is really significant, too, is this movie's made in 1968. We're sort of at the pinnacle moment of, of civil rights. You know, a, a lot is happening there. And to see a, a Black female character with the sexual agency that she has in this movie (laughs) is rare at the time. Let's be honest. That just doesn't happen. It's true. It's true. She plays a nymphomaniac. (laughs) Right. Very well, I thought. (laughs) With, with for the time, for 1968, uh, uh, she's wearing a dress that is just unbelievably incredible. It's scandalous. I mean, it's just wonderful. And and she she's definitely a standout. In a film where, I mean, to stand out, you've got over a dozen people chewing the scenery brilliantly. These are incredible character actors, incredible performers. Now, I want to go back to something you said about Jackie Gleason and camp, because I think you know, on the podcast, obviously, we talk about camp a lot. There's sort of this debate, especially recently, since the Met Ball so poorly presented its version of what camp is. And I was thinking like, oh, God, for young people wanting to study camp, this is a great movie to look at, you know, and then to, to follow it up with the Batman TV show. But really, I'm also thinking like, just enjoy Carol Channing. She exists in another plane in many ways. So I'm wondering if you can talk about Carol Channing. I actually heard from another friend, uh, a friend here in San Francisco, who is an obsessed fan of this movie and got to um, go to a a conversation with Carol Channing and actually was that, that, that dork who stood up and asked her a question about Skidoo, which he claims she pretty much shot down. And so he felt like she was not proud of the film. Um, and didn't want to talk about it. Now, I'm wondering, as as a Skidoo person, a Skidoo expert, do you have any sense of what, specifically Carol Channing, but any of them, any of these huge superstars, what their relationship with the film was after they made it? I would imagine that they never saw it again. Okay. Right? I mean, mean, most of them, you know, a lot of them died. I mean, Fred Clark was dead before the film even came out. Right, right. right. It's unlikely that Carol Channing would would have seen it again unless she would have gone to a screening or someone would have brought it to her. Right. And who knows how interested she would be in something like that. But I think that that's the answer to your question is I think that they they had no relationship to it really because it was was so difficult to see immediately. Mm. 
Oh, we need to dig in further. Well, Peaches, I saw that Frankie Avalon is performing at Oscars in Palm Springs. We just got to go ask him. That's, yeah. that's the, I want to talk about the very unsubtle themes of this movie. The, the fact that you have the free love movement basically storming the gates of God to bring about the end of that establishment at the end of this movie with a grand Carol Channing in drag musical number. Even with that, it seems obvious discussing the film after the fact, but when you're watching it, this is kind of a hard movie to put together. There's like three or four movies happening at once, I feel. And and so I'm just wondering if partially maybe one of the reasons this movie sort of gets lost in the fray is maybe folks just don't know how to meet it. I mean, how do you meet a film where, you know, Jackie Gleason takes LSD? Right. On its own level. Maybe you want to take acid to watch it. I don't know. But the thing about this film and, 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 and discussing it as a, an example of camp, this movie, in many ways, it's like active information and you are like a passive receiver of it. You know what I mean? Camp, you know it when you see it, basically. Right. And this is one of those movies where a lot of the films we do, and I think Michael spoke to this earlier, we go into the, the podcast in these conversations with an understanding that 99% of our listeners have seen the movie we're discussing, right? Like we did Night of the Living Dead recently. We've done Carrie. Uh, you know, it, 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 these are movies that we we sort of know people have seen. And, and with this film, I think in some ways we're, we're operating with the assumption that many of you may not have, have seen this. So when we're giving you these teasers, we're only scratching the surface. Like when Michael describes the end of the film, I was just sitting here thinking like, yeah, you know, if you were a grad student and you wanted to, you know, dissect something to get your, your film PhD, you know, uh, this movie in, in terms of what was going on in the country, what was going on in you know show business in Hollywood, what was going on as far as therapeutic use of LSD? Um, things that have come full circle that are that are completely relevant to what we're talking about today, but were discussed and actually maybe even ahead of where we're at today in 1968. It's an incredible movie to dissect and. And another thing that just popped in my head was sort of the industrial prison complex dialogue you could have. Spoiler alert, they dose an entire prison, um, you know, and, and, and cause the prison guards to trip out and, and to see, you know, naked football teams and dancing barrels. And you got to see this movie. So with that being said, and you're a super fan, what is your favorite scene in the movie or your favorite moment? What do you enjoy watching the most? It's impossible to say. I mean, obviously, Jackie Gleason's trip sequence is great. Carol Channing's bizarre singing at the end of the film. <laughs> yes. Uh, where she dresses an admiral, you know? Yes. Your preamble to the question maybe think about is how this film is, um, It's you know, it's not just the LSD, I mean, you know, the hippies, but it's the generation gap is really uh, fully mm. explored there. And the casting really, you know, by having all of those faces that were famous, you know, many of them from the 1940s onwards, then they're juxtaposed against, you know, the hippies and Alexandra Hayes' character of the daughter and uh, John Philip Law, you know, I mean, a, a stash, fantastic name for a, a hippie character. But it's also showing the generation gap is bridged because... Well, you see Groucho Marx smoking a joint in one of the final scenes of the film. Right. And you know, we know Jackie Gleason uh, drops acid. It's worth pointing out that it's a very positive portrayal of LSD. Yes. And apparently, Preminger was going to make a negative film about LSD, and he was talked out of it because he and said, look, why, why would you don't even know what you're talking about? Like, why would you want to do that? And he was like, oh, you know what? You're right. And so he 
he himself, right, Otto Preminger in his 60s, did LSD with Timothy Leary. Wow. In preparation for this. And, and of course, Mary and Sammy Davis Jr. as well are in the um, the trailer for Skidoo. There's like a three minute long trailer that was you know shown in theaters. And so, you know, they have Timothy Leary as, as the, the quintessential counterculture guru of the age. Right. And he's sort of inviting young people to watch this film because otherwise they might not have wanted to see a film with Jackie Gleason and Carol Channing. Right. Right. Well, and I, I really appreciate that you brought that aspect up, especially with the generation gap, because I think it's very important to viewing this film. My mom would have been a teenager when this came out and I was telling her about this movie. She hadn't heard about it. And her first reaction was like, who wants to see Jackie Gleason drop acid? She's like, he's such a square. I'm like, that's kind of the point though, right? The point of yeah. the movie is to look at these people who we would consider establishment and see that they're sort of reaching out via this medium of psychedelic film to say, hey, there's a world where we can all exist. I mean, Peter Lawford's in this movie. That's bizarre, <laughs> you know, like. Speaking of coexisting, one, there's one uh, cameo in the film that is um, uncredited, and that's at the very end of the sequence where they're, at the very beginning with the, uh, the TV remotes, where they're playing with dueling TV remotes and changing the channel. The final guy that you see sort of giving that statement is a guy named Joe Pine right? P-Y-N-E. And he was the predecessor to like Bill O'Reilly or Martin Downey Jr. He was the original, like super confrontational, super right wing, jingoistic talk show host. We're all on the same page here with the fact that it, it, what a, what an interesting thing to know that Otto Preminger was going to approach it from a different point of view, because I actually think that's one of the most fascinating um, parts of this film is discovering, you know, that it was made by him. And then when you watch the movie, it's not subtle. I mean, this is a movie that's basically saying LSD will save us. You know, it's like uh, this is a, a very, you know, pro drug movie for 1968. And what makes it even more fabulous and why the, why the trailer is so interesting is that the cast is clearly, whether they knew it or not, they are co-signing this philosophy. They're endorsing this at a time when people were not sure how to feel about drugs. Jackie Gleason is the Archie Bunker of America. I mean, he is, you know, to have him tripping on acid in the film is extraordinary. And so I love that they made the trailer the way they made it, because if you look at the names in the poster, I'm assuming, but based on what I know about Hollywood and the cast and what was going on at the time, you as a young person, especially if you're interested in being transgressive or free love, you don't think this is a movie for you, right? Like this cast is saying conservative film directed by a, a you know famous filmmaker. No, the movie itself, the power of the movie is that it is very in your face. So for all those reasons, if we haven't sold it to you yet, then you're an idiot. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that we've really turned a lot of people on. But before we wrap up at all, I, I have to ask, because I believe in your email, you mentioned that you actually have some Skidoo memorabilia. And I'm wondering, are you like a collector? Is it the one piece? And how do you find it? Oh, I found them online. I have a three different size posters for Skidoo. One of them is a six sheet that is the size of a oh, garage door. Wow. Amazing. And then I have a three sheet that's the, you know that's larger than a door, and then you know just a regular sort of Hollywood uh, something. I I am a collector, right? But I don't necessarily collect Skidoo as much as I collect uh, memorabilia relating to candy. 
Oh, uh, the candy film. That's really where, you know, I have press books for that. Also, I collect a lot of memorabilia for The Magic Christian. Oh. Well, ju- just by virtue of the fact that you have those three uh, posters for Skidoo, Richard, you may be the biggest collector of Skidoo That's true. That's like, true. I, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, I, I, I challenge a listener to come out and say, I have more merchandise than Richard. Well, and, and Richard, I think that that leads us to a good place as, as we were wrapping up. To ask a question, I like to ask everybody who has held a cult film close the way that you hold Skidoo close. Because here you have, uh, you know, these posters, like Peaches said, you may have the biggest collection. Uh, Who knows? Because there's not a lot of Skidoo merch out in the world, let's be honest. Also looking at Dangerous Mind, there are nine articles on your site that reference Skidoo. I mean, you're doing the work. But you also said when we asked you about this, that it had been a number of years between your viewings of the film. and. With cult films, we carry them with us through our lives. And sometimes, you know, where we're at when we see them and where we're at now with them change a little. So I'm wondering if your relationship with Skidoo has changed over the years, if at all. No, it hasn't really. I mean, when I first got my hands on a copy of Skidoo, it was, would have been in the mid-90s. I think I bought it from a street vendor in, in Manhattan. And um, I inflicted that film on so many people, right? I would just get them stoned and I would just say, sit down and we're going to watch this, right? I was the same way. I was very evangelical about Putney Swope at the mm. same time, right? And, and uh, Valley of the Dolls, right? Which, which, uh, oh, the best. That's another story. But I personally campaigned to get Valley of the Dolls released on Laserdisc. They, it was in their catalog for four years, Pioneer's catalog for four years before they finally actually released it. Amazing. Wow. I would call them <laughs> and say, why is this not out? And finally they put it out. That's what it takes sometimes. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I can't, we can't leave without me asking you this. Obviously I'm in the business of, of creating a scene in, in which to watch a movie. Uh, that is what I do. And so I haven't always been able to be as blatant about my um you know, advertising what drugs or alcohol or, you know, what what things to use when, when viewing a movie. So what is the ideal recipe for someone? Now, should they watch it sober? Should they watch it stoned? Should they trip? How, how is it best to watch Skidoo? Well, I've basically been high since 1979. <laughs> <laughs> I am a wake and bake uh, pot smoker since the age of 13. So I've only ever seen it stoned. So okay. I can't really speak to anything else. But you know what? It reminds me, the cast, including Harry Nilsson, had never taken it. So they were pretending that they were drunk. The only two people connected wow. with the film who we know for certain took LSD are um, Preminger and Groucho Marx, who took it with Paul Krasner, the um, editor and publisher of The Realist uh, counterculture magazine in the 60s and 70s. That's wild. It's so great. Well, uh, we cannot thank you enough for coming on and talking to us about this movie. I honestly it's one of the films that we've covered recently much like anti-mame where um my re-watching the film decades later i love it more than i did when i first saw it oh yeah the way it resonates with what's happening today and to see that they made this movie so many decades ago yeah i really hope that we get people turned on to skidoo and you've certainly helped and we'd love to have you back sometime so thank you so much for joining us yes thank you thank you And 
that was our fabulous interview with Richard Metzger. Uh, Peaches, I'm obsessed with Richard and his taste in films. I also, just even in digging into his biography uh, and knowing about disinformation and dangerous minds and the fact that he's talked to Kenneth Anger and Grant Morrison and all of these sort of counterculture figures, of course he loves Skidoo because Skidoo in many ways is uh, it forms the tenets of, of what a lot of those other people are about. So, Absolutely. And he was filled with knowledge and trivia that was so great. And I mean, we basically, I think, determined during that interview that Richard Metzger is the world's largest collector of Skidoo memorabilia, mostly because we we don't know of any others. But yeah. but that being said, if you're listening and you want to challenge this claim, you let us know. You send us pictures of your Skidoo memorabilia collection. But just the fact that he has three oversized posters, one of which could take, a, you know, could plaster an entire wall of a room. That's pretty amazing. I am just so thrilled we got to celebrate this movie this week because in the pantheon of Midnight Maths film, This is certainly unique, and I think that people are going to either embrace it or not, but that's what cult films are all about. But the fact that we hopefully can introduce to some of you the opportunity to skidoo. Well, (laughs) (laughs) there's a part of this show that I feel like we just didn't get to. And so um, when this episode comes out, I would like to hop on over to the Patreon and uh, engage in a discussion somehow with the listeners on drugs and movie watching. This is a movie about people using drugs, obviously using psychedelics. I think in the midnight movie, cult movie world, there is this sort of... um, unspoken acceptance around drug use or even encouraged drug use while watching certain movies. So I asked him, you know, like, how how fucked up do you need to be? And he said, well, he's always high, but he's always high, you know, uh, when he watches anything. Well, let's also just even take into account the amount of cult films or, or sort of cult energy that surrounds stoner movies. The idea of the buddy stoner duo is such a threat of certain kinds of cult films. Cheech and Chong, Jay and Silent Bob. You know, it's part of our fabric. Are those better enjoyed if you're high? I guess that's my my question. Like, I I don't know. Right. I, like, for example, I think probably watching Skidoo, probably, you know, on Mushrooms or something might enhance it. I don't know that you need it. But maybe, maybe I would say something like uh, The Wall by Pig Floyd, a movie like that might be better enhanced. I don't know. I think it would this scare the-, the shit out of you if you watched The Wall high. <laughs> I mean... I remember once hosting a midnight screening when it was new of a movie where people showed up tripping and I think they had major, major regrets. And that film was the human centipede. And I remember them (laughs) not the rest of us were kind of really able to take it, you know, for what it was and laugh and be grossed out. But I remember having some friends in the theater that night who were not having a good time with that film. So I do, I I guess I I want on the Patreon for us to talk about our good experiences, our bad experiences, what our drunken experiences, just, just what level of alter or not being altered is good or not for, for certain movies. Yeah. So maybe we should host a zoom chat. That would be a great zoom chat. That would be super fun because I think having people tell their stories of debauchery, positive or negative uh, would be better than reading them. I, I think it'd be more fun to hear them tell the story. And for Patreon listeners. And it obviously we mentioned to listeners in general that you can watch this movie on YouTube and it is out there. But if you are on our Patreon, we will also leave a link for the entirety of Skidoo as well. I'm so glad we got to celebrate this movie, this good trip of a movie. 
you know. Yeah. Because it, it is. Too. It is a good trip. It's not. Although I'm thinking about cinematic bad trips. And the first thing that comes to mind is the Tina Turner sequence and Tommy. And I'm kind of like, well, if I got high and saw Tina Turner, then I, I would still consider that a win. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And if, if this episode inspired you to get in your, your favorite rowboat with all of your friends, do a lot of drugs and storm God's yacht uh, while singing a song called Skidoo. Well, then you too may be one of the children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.